0: Good morning, Four Corners. Isn't it an incredible thing to consider that God speaks to us? I think so often we expect a whisper from God or maybe a loud voice uh, in the middle of times of crisis or maybe times of indecision. And we're looking for a word from God, uh, something just out of the air. And it is always refreshing. To consider that every time we open up our Bible, we are receiving a word from God. That God speaks in His word. That that it is God's word. The Holy Spirit uh, breathed it. It is God breathed. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it speaks to us. God speaks to us through it for all of life. And it's one of those things that we often forget is that when we devote ourselves to the scriptures, we do become, as I've often said, like that Psalm 1 man. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. He will be like, or he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And so that's why we do this. If you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, you're, you're visiting with someone else, you say, well, what in the world are you doing uh, devoting uh, all of this time to some ancient set uh, or some set of ancient documents? Uh, some books maybe have had an influence on Western civilization and throughout the world. But why would you spend time in this? And it's because God speaks to us in his word. His word is his speech. And so we come together now by faith, asking God to speak to us through the Bible. If you will, please go with me in your Bibles to Genesis 9, verses 18 to 29. That's where we are today. Genesis 9, 18 to 29. The title for the sermon this morning is After the Ark, part two. So we had... Part 1, the first part of Genesis 9, last week, and then now today we come to after the ark, part 2. In Genesis chapter 6 to 8, we get the story of Noah and the ark, Noah's ark. That's the way we tend to refer to this. In fact, if you pick up most children's Bibles or children's books about, uh, that just go through the Bible. That's what this pe- portion of Genesis or portion of the Bible would be entitled more than likely as Noah's ark. And so throughout chapters 6 to 8, we get Noah and the ark. We get Noah building the ark, entering the ark, staying in the ark during the flood. And then we get Noah exiting the ark. So as we come into this chapter, chapter 9, we are looking at the events that occurred after the ark. Soon we're going to get another one of those glorious genealogies in uh, chapter 10. And the Noah will be in the distant past. We'll move far beyond Noah. And, and just a, in a chapter or two, we'll be, uh, we'll be well many years past Noah with the Tower of Babel. And then, of course, with Abraham. So we're moving beyond that. But we've got this set of scenes that come after the ark here in chapter 9. And in the first scene, which is what we covered last week in verses 1 to 17... We get a vertical picture. So we get a picture of God's relating to the human beings there on the earth, which would be this one family. You would have Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. So we get this vertical picture of the divine interaction with the human, with these flood survivors. And we have God in the first part of chapter 9 speaking to Noah and his sons. He's speaking to them, and, and what he says to them can really be summed up with three words. This is kind of a review of last week. What he says can be summed up in three words. He blesses, he promises, and he assures. He does those three things in those first 17 verses. So let me just briefly state what I mean by those. First, he blesses. So in chapter 9, verse 1, we get these words, I establish." Well, sorry, in 9-1 we get these words. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we have God blessing these humans, entering into sort of a, a recreation or a new creation, a new world, a new beginning. And God is blessing them with the same language that he blessed, uh, with which he blessed Adam and Eve at the very beginning of Genesis: Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we have these creational blessings coming from the Lord to his creatures, to these humans. So first he blesses. Second, he promises. Chapter 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the the earth. And so what we have here is God establishes a covenant. He establishes a promise that will never be broken with these human beings and with all of creation for that matter. And this is what he says. I will never destroy the world by flood again. So that's the promise. And then we get his assurance. So verse 13 says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And then in verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So here we have God's assurance. He he blesses them as his new creation, his recreation. And then he promises them that he's not going to wipe it all out again with the flood. And then he gives a sign to assure them that this will, in fact, be the case. So that's the first scene. That's what we covered last week. That's the first the ark picture, if you will. And what impression does that make on us as we see God interacting with these humans? Well, we have a good Creator who loves and preserves what He has made. He destroys the whole world in this massive, catastrophic event, a global flood where all of the mountain peaks are covered with water by at least, 22 feet of water covering the highest mountain peak. The foundations of the earth are shaken. Who knows what this did to the earth? You don't get that kind of detail, but the, the way that this reformed the, the earth and the continental structure of the earth. This catastrophic event And through the midst of it all, we get this floating box on the water where God, in that box, is preserving his creation. And then we see all of this reiterated at the beginning of chapter 9. So God is presented as a good creator who loves and preserves what he has made, but he's also presented as a covenant making and covenant keeping God who never lies and is always faithful. And that's where we. We, we ended with that last week. We talked about how God never lies. He's the never lying God. And he always keeps his promises. And so this is the picture that we get of God at the first half of chapter 9. It's a beautiful picture. It's a glorious picture. It's a picture that should create in us much praise of God. And, and one of the key features of the opening chapters of Genesis is they really set the tone for how we view God as we encounter the rest of the Bible. God is, through Moses, giving his people Israel a concrete sense for who he is. They've just come out of Egypt. They there were probably uh, had the influence of all kinds of horrible worship of idols, worship of crocodiles and hawks and other kinds of things. One of the most interesting. Uh, Parts of the ancient world that I find is ancient Egypt, despite all of the idolatry that you find. And so when I go to a museum, that's one of the things that that I go to first. That's one of the things I I like the most. And, And there, all over everything, are these pictures of these ancient Egyptian deities. And so when God calls his people out of that context, they were there for 400 years in Egypt, in slavery, and God calls them out of that and brings them from that into the promised land. God wants them to have a very clear understanding of who he is. And that starts here with Genesis. And it starts with us as Bible readers today. We are not there in the wilderness about to enter the promised land. We're here in the 21st century and God is wanting to tell us who he is what He's about, what His will is for us. And that is what we find very clearly portrayed for us in the opening chapters of Genesis. And here at the beginning of chapter 9, God is once again presented as a good creator, preserving His creation, a faithful, never-lying God. This is what we have on the divine level. And then we come to the second scene. Then we come to verses 18 to 29. And this is one very different portrayal. Here, set against the backdrop of God's beauty and perfection, we get a fairly ugly picture of human nature, of what's going on on the human plane on the human level we get this glorious picture of god he makes covenant he keeps covenant he's faithful he does not lie he's good he preserves he saves he redeems and then we have in that against that backdrop this picture verses 18 to 29 of the ugliness once again of human life of human nature Of human behavior. On the divine level, we have love, grace, and faithfulness. And to sum it up, on the human level, we have sin and death. What? I thought thought we left that behind under the water, right? I thought that was that was buried with the flood. No. Not at all. The mere contrast that we have here between God and His perfection, His beauty, His character, and what we see with humanity here reminds us that if there is to be any hope, catch this, if there is to be any hope for humanity, it will be found in God alone. The Bible tells us that over and over and over again in various ways. That the only hope For any human being is in the character of God, in the nature of God, in the ways of God. God's initiative, God's grace, God's faithfulness. That's a sturdy ground. All other grounds, as we have from the song, are sinking sand. This is the only solid thing to hope in. So a fresh start, not enough. Not enough. Getting rid of corrupt society not enough. All those canites washed away. Not enough. Still we have this darkness, this sin and this death. You will never find hope in a fresh start. Maybe tomorrow's Monday. I have a tendency to I'm resolution oriented. So I am one of those type of people who uh, makes a list of resolutions at the beginning of every year, yes. Maybe you're like that too. Maybe it's a type A kind of thing. But I do that. In fact, I do that every week, practically, in various ways. And maybe that's the way you are wired too. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. A fresh start is not enough. It will not save us. It is not something to hope in. Monday's new week new way of being, new way of doing, cannot be the object of our hope. Cleaning up our society, cleaning up our cities, cleaning up the degradation that we find around us, not the final hope. Only God. And there are three things that I want to hone in on as we go through this passage. Verses 18 to 29, the second scene, once again, of The after the ark period. Three things I want to hone in on. And those are all found for you in the bulletin. So you can find those uh, there under the sermon portion of the order of service. Three things that we need to see. First, the drunkenness. Secondly, the dishonoring. And then third, the death. Here it's a pretty bleak picture. Even if on the surface it doesn't seem that way. Those are really the three key points in this series of verses. So if you will, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. This is God's Word for the building up of His people. The sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And... He died. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on this time in His Word, that the Lord would help us all to to, uh, listen and to be receptive to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in each of us as we gather here today as God's people. The Holy Spirit is with us. In a very special way, when we gather for corporate worship, it's a special thing in the eyes of our God. And so the Holy Spirit is here with us and he wants to work in us. He wants to change us. He wants to conform us into Christ's likeness and draw sinners to himself. So so let's ask that he will sovereignly, graciously overcome our own sin and do his work today. Father, we love you. We thank you that you give us your word. You speak to us. We are not left to ourselves. We are not left alone, just groping. But Father, we have your word to guide us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have your word to guide us in the faith as we trust daily in you and walk with you, as we hope in Jesus, as we trust in his finished work on our behalf on the cross. As we hope in His resurrection from the dead and look forward to our inheritance, which is undefiled and imperishable, unfading, waiting for us. Father, we thank You that through Your Word You speak many glorious things to us. We thank You that Your Word is about You. And Father, that through it we come to know You, which is the the end of man. To know You, to simply know You. And in that, to worship you, to be in awe of you, and to enjoy you forever. Father, we praise you that you have made us, and that you have made us for yourself. Father, would you work among us this morning? Undoubtedly, Father, there are some here who are not born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus who have not tasted the forgiveness of sins through Christ's cross, who have not hoped everything in Him, banked everything on Him, who have not turned away from sin and self. And Father, we ask that You would draw them to Yourself this morning and that You would save them, Father. We pray for Your mercy among us. And for all of us, Father, We beat our chest before you and we cry out, have mercy on us. God, we know that we are sinners. We know that we disobey you as our heavenly father, as our good father. We know that you discipline us as a good father. Lord, we disobey you. We get distracted. We love the world, the things of the world, rather than you, as we should We love ourselves and our own interests more than the interests of others. Father, we are consumed oftentimes with the things that the world is consumed with. We seek the same things the Gentiles seek, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Help us, Father, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and to trust that you will add all the other things to us. Father, help us this morning to see you freshly, trust you anew, and to do this through your most powerful word. May this time together not be in vain, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things to see this morning as we go through these verses, the drunkenness, the dishonoring, and the death. So first, the drunkenness. This is a surprising, surprising encounter here that we read in these verses. Many of us have read this before, so it's not so surprising. But if you just became a Christian and said, I'm going to read through the Bible. And you pick up the Bible and you start to read through and you get to these verses, you're like, what? It just strikes you. One of the most important verses for understanding everything we are about to encounter in this story is Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, which we've just seen recently. After the flood, God says this for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth now that is that sounds a lot like it's a very very similar language to what we found before the flood in chapter 6 where we saw, I believe it's verse five, chapter six, verse five, where we saw the depravity of humanity really described in robust ways. I mean, it's just layers and layers and layers of depravity that we find just in one concise verse there in chapter six. And here we get a reiteration of that. Once again, 821, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And this tells us That the flood did not get rid of sin because it did not get rid of humanity. If you are to get rid of sin, you must wipe out man. You must wipe out people who come from Adam. Even Noah and his sons were sinners. Be easy to forget this. As you're reading through chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, Noah is just a gleaming character. I mean, we get, we get people like that in the Bible. A few, uh, and Ezekiel mentions them, Job and, and Noah, Joseph, Daniel. These are people in the Bible who just get incredible commendation from the Lord. These are men who, whose characters seem nearly spotless. They just, they just walk through the pages of Scripture, pointing us to the perfect Christ. They themselves, not perfect. But just reading through the text, it would seem as though these guys are so holy, And we're meant to take note and imitate them, as Hebrews 11, I think, implies. And as Paul says when he says, imitate me, we are to see these men as those who trusted God and who walked with him faithfully. But these men were sinners too. And Noah and his sons were sinners. Children of Adam, they live outside of the garden. They do not live in the garden. Partaking of the tree of life, walking with God in the cool of the day. No, they live outside of the garden, just as Cain, Abel, Lamech, those of us who live today. Yes, Noah was, as chapter 6, verse 9 tells us, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And listen, there's nothing about this story that should discredit that. There's nothing about what we're going to read that, that undoes that in any comprehensive way. We, should, we need to remember that. Yes, he is a righteous man, blameless in his generation, a man who walked with God. He was a man who had been shown God's favor, God's grace, chapter 6, verse 8. He was a man of remarkable faith, as Hebrews 11 makes clear to us. God had changed Noah's heart. And by faith had counted Noah righteous in his sight. Just as he had Abraham, Paul says in uh, Romans, the just shall live by faith. That's all the way back to the beginning. The just, Adam and Eve, Abel, righteous Abel, lived by faith. Noah lived by faith. He was counted righteous, just as Abraham was later in Genesis chapter 15. He was counted righteous by God, by faith. God had changed his heart and by faith had counted Noah righteous in his sight. And yet Noah was a sinner. Noah was a sinner saved by grace. And as we look around this morning, those of us in this room who are believers, who have trusted Christ, repented of sin, who've been given a new heart by God, new affections, new appetites for God and his glory. We recognize that we are sinners Saved by grace like Noah. And God does not want us to forget that Noah was a sinner. And so we get this short episode in the life of Noah. So look with me. Verses 18 to 21. Let's look at what these verses have to say. We first get the setup. The sons of Noah. This is verses 18 to 21. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We've already had them mentioned We know that all the people on the earth go back to Shem, Ham, or Japheth. You go anywhere in the world, in history, and you can point at a people. You can point at an individual person. And all of us are descendants of Shem or Ham or Japheth. All of us. And through that, all descendants of Noah. And through that, all descendants of Adam. As Paul says in Acts to the Athenians that we all come from one man. We all go back to Adam. So we have here the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. That's setting the stage for what we're about to read. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So all the nations that we'll see described in chapter 10, and that we'll go on to see described throughout the pages of the Bible, all of them come from Sham, Ham, and or Japheth. And this is what it says, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, some commentators have referred to this event as a second fall, and that might be a little dramatic in terms of understanding what's going on here, but I think it is to some degree fitting, a second fall. And what they mean by this is that this scene with Noah mirrors what we had with Adam. Think about it for a moment. We had a sinful choice followed by a shameful nakedness that ultimately results in family strife. That's what we had going on in Genesis chapters three to four, that Adam took of the fruit, and he became naked and ashamed. And then, what do we have in chapter four? We've got the strife between Abel and Cain, as Cain kills Abel. And so we have here, I think, a mirroring of that. Just as in the beginning, just as at the very beginning of creation, there was human sin. Here we have at the new beginning human sin. So we're meant to see a, a, a re-picturing of the opening chapters, those first few chapters of Genesis. Noah is portrayed here as indulging himself in the wine that was produced from his vineyard. God makes the ground fruitful again. And this is, this is something that gets passed over pretty quickly, but think about it for a moment. Here we have a fruitful ground. That should strike us as pretty remarkable, given what's just happened. That the whole world has been covered in water. So once again, even in this, this little thread, this little detail that we have here, behind Noah's sin, we have God's faithfulness. Things are growing and man with his mind made in the image of God is able to cultivate the earth and bring forth good things. God makes the ground fruitful. God gives good gifts from the ground. And here Noah uses those gifts unwisely and excessively to a point of disgracing himself. Here is a man who up to this point has been described with the utmost dignity. The utmost bearing and demeanor. This is a man of gravitas, of of weightiness and heaviness. This is a man who is serious about what he should be serious about, a man who lives before the eyes of God. And here he is passed out naked in his tent. It's an incredible picture. Not a picture we really want in our minds, but an incredible picture. He's passed out naked in his tent for others to see. Ham saw him, but who else could have seen him? He's just passed out. Anyone potentially could have walked in and seen him. We know that drinking wine is not in and of itself sinful. So Psalm 104, 14 to 15 is often cited on this point. And it says this, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. This is the psalmist praising God. And plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So we see here that, that wine is a, a thing that God has made. And it has a function like we see here with these other good gifts of God presented here. And there are various passages throughout the Bible that show that wine is in use among God's people. We see it at the beginning of the New Testament with Jesus there in John 2 with the, the wedding at Cana. And we see it also in, in other portions at festivals among The ancient Israelites. We see it with Joseph and his brothers. We see it all throughout the scriptures. That this is a good gift of God. And yet we get some incredibly, in the midst of that, stay with me. We get some incredibly strong warnings about the use of wine or strong drink in the Bible. So let me just read a few of them to you. One of them is in Proverbs 20 verse 1. It says this, wine is a mocker. Who does it mock? Yourself. It mocks you when you drink it to excess. It makes a laughing stock of you. Much like Noah here. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. A fool, a person who gives themselves over to alcohol is a fool. Proverbs 23, 29 to 32 says this. Who has woe? I don't know about you, but I don't want a lot of woe in my life. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? There's enough wounds in life to work through than to cause them to yourself. Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. That's the Bible's portrayal of the dangers and the warnings and the cautions associated with alcohol. And of course, in the New Testament, Paul will say, To Christians in Ephesians 5.18, he'll say these words, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I don't know this, but I wonder if there in Paul's mind is Noah, the first drunken man, at least that we're told about, not the first, not the first in that ancient society, but the first drunken man that we're told about there, righteous Noah, walks with God, passed out drunk, in a tent, naked. So what should we take away from this? There's a lot that we could take away from this. This is not really the main thrust of this story. Is Noah's drunkenness. It's an important feature. But, but I think we're to extract some things from this. We're, we're to look at this and draw out some implications for ourselves. So what are some of the implications that we can draw out for ourselves? First, our choices No matter how small they may seem and how private they are, have immense consequences. See, Noah made a choice to go further and further and further. And it's those those very small choices to bring to bring hand to mouth and to imbibe that liquid. It's those choices that led him to this place. And these are private choices, right? He's just hanging out at home. He's not out in front of everybody. You know, as I grew up hearing uh, oftentimes in church, he's not being a bad witness, you know, kind of thing, right? That's not it. That's not, that's not it. He's at home by himself. Private choice. Small choice. Immense consequences in the life of his family. Another implication is that alcohol has the power to weaken and shame Even the strongest and wisest of men. Think about that. The power of this substance that we may take lightly. Some of us maybe have experienced that. Some of us may be recovering alcoholics. Some of us may have experienced that in our home growing up as kids. Some of us may may know this intuitively already or have experienced it firsthand. But what we need to see here is it is like a monster or it can be like a monster. In a person's life. It has Hulk-like strength. That's a reference to the incredible Hulk. It has Hulk-like strength over the wisdom and dignity, see this, of this man described in the most glowing of terms in the Bible. It's incredible. It's an incredible warning to those of us who take alcohol lightly. Who drink as though it's not a big deal. Who get a buzz as though it's not a big deal. Who are quite happy to get drunk only on occasions with the right people. Who understand that we love the Lord, right? Well, here we see a different take. Kent Hughes reminds us that we cannot grow lax in older years. Here's another implication for us. Some of us maybe are a little older. Maybe you think you've kind of arrived, you are spiritually sound. You know a lot about the Bible. You have been walking with the Lord for a long time, and so you can kind of loosen up a little bit. Get a little more laid back about how to go about the Christian life. It's really the young guys who need to make sure they're vigilant, watchful, on the alert, but the older guys among us, you can just kind of chill out a little bit. No. Noah's towards the latter part of his life. Been on the earth for 601 years. Long time. And even now, this gets him. First Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Are you full of pride in the Christian life? Do you think you've got it together and you will definitely stand? Your ducks are in a row. Take heed lest you fall. So now... That being said, let's move our attention from Noah's sin, which, as I said before, is not the focus of this narrative. It's an important piece of this narrative. We should take note. We should consider, as I've said so far, that, that Noah's still a sinner. We should consider this as a lesson to those of us, as we've just seen. But the focus really is on Noah's son, Ham. It's the real focus of the narrative. So let's move now to the second point. We've got the drunkenness. Now we move... To the dishonoring. Look at verses 22 to 27. This is what it says. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. his servant. This is one of those stories in the Bible that has gotten a lot of attention by commentators because there have been many strange ways of interpreting what Ham did. I mean really weird ways of interpreting what Ham did to his father. Since to uncover someone's nakedness has sexual connotations in Leviticus in particular... Some have concluded that there is some kind of sexual sin here on the part of Ham. That he either had sexual relations with Noah's wife, his mother, or whatever that would be, but his, Noah's wife. Or some form of homosexual activity is in view here. And some have even suggested castration, which that does not fit the narrative at all. I don't know why they've come up with that one. But there's all kinds of... Uh, of ways of taking this. And this is one of the reasons that this text has received a lot of attention, is because of all of these ways of coming out of, of interpreting what Ham did exactly. But notice that the text does not say that Ham uncovered Noah's nakedness, but rather Noah uncovered his own nakedness. And Ham saw it. That's what the text says. A straightforward reading of this text shows that Ham's sin was to look upon his father's nakedness and to then announce this to his brothers. That's it. That's it. And maybe our desensitized culture, or uh, that really doesn't take such things very seriously, thinks that's silly, say, there has to be something more. He had to do something worse than that. I mean, come on. This has to be bad. Well, it is bad, but it's not that, I don't think. You can read on this passage and see the way that people deal with it. So here's what I think happened. Rather, Then respecting his father in his moment of disgrace and vulnerability, Ham chooses to make a mockery of his father by showing off his folly. This is incredible. And maybe there's some sort of, of resentment in Ham towards his dad. I don't know. We can only speculate. We don't know what the relationships are like between these sons and their father Noah. But what we see here is an action That looks upon Noah in his disgrace. This is his son. Looks upon him in his disgrace. And you can almost see a smile coming on his face. Like, look at dad. This guy, he's ridiculous. And then he walks out of the door. This is his father. He walks out of the door and goes, Shem, David, come here, see this. You've got to see this. Look at this guy. Look 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 at what happened. He's passed out in the floor naked. This is the impression I think that we're given. Here he makes a proclamation that his dad is passed out drunk naked on the floor. The other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, do the exact opposite. Rather than publicize their father's nakedness, they cover it. And rather than look upon him, they are very careful to avoid even the slightest glance. I mean, that's an incredible picture. You see them, they're walking backwards with a, a, a covering on their, on their shoulders so that they cannot, they don't, even, they don't even happen to see their father in this disgraceful state. They don't even want for a second to see that. And they walk backwards and they put the covering on top of him. And then they walk back out. They never saw it. They know it happened. But they never saw Noah in this moment of disgrace and vulnerability. We know that God takes honoring one's father and mother very seriously in the Bible. Even if we don't. God does. This is at the top of the list of the Ten Commandments that deal with the human level. So we've got God and how we are to relate to Him in those first four commandments. And then we've got the human interactions from five on. And the first of those is that we are to honor our father and our mother. In fact, according to the law, children were stoned to death for striking or cursing their parents. Once again, striking to those of us living in our culture. Children stoned for doing this to their parents. Exodus twenty one, fifteen, Leviticus twenty nine. You can go and read that. So here's the question I think we're meant to ask, at least part of it at this point. How seriously do we take it? If God takes it seriously, and what we go on to read about this curse which Noah speaks but is prophetic, how seriously do we take honoring father and mother? Now, I think this has an application to children, obviously, and also to parents. But to young children, the application is simple. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. That is what we teach our children. That's at the top of the list of what we must teach our children. And they will be disobedient. And it will be hard sometimes to figure out how to discipline them, and how to be both firm and gentle at the same time. Like a tender father with a strong hand? What does that look like? It's difficult and depends on the child often. Yet we are told that this is one of our primary responsibilities as parents is to see to it that our children obey. And if we don't, we set them up for a life of much folly. Proverbs will go on to say that the one who does not do this hates his son hates his son. I would venture to say that none of us in here hate our children. So we must discipline them. Paul Tripp and Ted Tripp both speak about this uh, in some really good parenting books. But they talk about us being ambassadors as parents, ambassadors and agents of God, that we are, we're not about our own authority. We don't teach our children to honor us. Get this, it's so important. We don't teach our children to honor us because we need honor. We like honor. It feels good to be honored and obeyed and we're control freaks about it. We wanna control our children. We want a happy home. So that's why for us, for our own pride and comfort, no, we're ambassadors of the king. We are agents of the king. Why are our children taught to obey us and to honor us because God has commanded them to. And we are God's instrument to make sure that they do it. And so we have here this awful act of dishonoring his father. And so it is no surprise to us that this dishonoring brings a curse. When Noah wakes up, he somehow learns of what had happened to him, and we don't know how he learned of it, but he, but he figures out what's happened to him. And just as Ham, Noah's youngest son, had brought dishonor to this family, Noah prophetically speaks a curse on Ham's youngest son, Canaan. Ham's descendants through Canaan will serve the descendants of Sham and Japheth. And this is hard to understand. Why did the curse go to Canaan rather than Ham? And it's partly based on what I just said, the youngest son thing. But I I think there's many ways of trying to explain this. But one of the ways I'm understanding is this is is typical of what's going to happen later with Canaan's descendants, the Canaanites. And it is here that we need to remember who the first audience of Genesis was. Because here's the thing. Let me say this. When we read the Bible, we get one thing right almost all the time. The Bible's for me. So we read it. And we apply it. And that's true. We should. The Bible is God's living word. It speaks to us today. Every bit of scripture speaks to us today. But oftentimes, and I appreciate Will actually in one sermon that he preached not too, too long ago, he mentioned this very important hermeneutical or interpretive fact. And that is that we always have to deal with the first audience. Who received these words first? This is very important in this particular instance. Who received these words first? And this is so important. The Israelites, as they were about to enter the land of Canaan. Don't miss that. They're about to enter the land of Canaan. God had promised the land to Abraham. We'll read about that later. Canaan's wickedness has, had reached its fullness. God told Abraham that, that his descendants would be in slavery for 400 years. But then when the wickedness of the Canaanites reached its fullest God would bring his people out. He would save his people from Egypt. He would prepare the Canaanites for destruction. He would bring his people out of slavery. God who saves and the God who judges. He would bring his people against the Canaanites and destroy them. But of course, that didn't happen. The Israelites did not obey The Lord. They were commanded to conquer Canaan entirely. Just as God used the flood to wipe out all humanity, God was going to use his people to wipe out the evil Canaanites. This is one of the great problems that people often cite in the Bible. God sponsored genocide. How can anyone believe the Old Testament? God wiped out the whole world with the flood. Every person. Men, women, children, donkeys, bears, frogs, everything got wiped out in the flood One day, God is going to destroy the world and remake it. So it should be no surprise to us that God uses a different means here besides water. He uses His people. He uses the armies of Israel to carry out His judgment on the evil, child-sacrificing, sexually debauched Canaanites. I I understand this is a difficulty. It's one we will have to speak to, but this is the bare fact of it. God is a God who judges sinners. And he is a God who is over his world. And we see the same thing here with the Canaanites. And so what we have here, going back to Israel, who's receiving these words, Moses is reading these words, or whoever, one of the Levites, reading these words, the people of God receiving these words. And what is this going to do with these Israelites as they've been in the wilderness, wandering around, and they're about to enter into Canaan? What's the effect? Justification for what they're about to do, which is going to be hard to do, and a warning that they have to do it or they will receive the influence of the Canaanites and go down the same road and that's what happened. So much so we get to the time of Elijah and he's all he goes up on the mountain Mount Carmel there and what do we have all of these wicked prophets of Baal a Canaanite god and he challenges those prophets. He says, "Call on your god and see what he will do and Israel's watching." Call on and They tried all day long to call on their God, and their God did nothing. Elijah said one simple prayer. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do this thing. Burn up this altar. And he, but that was after he poured water all over it, and God did what Elijah asked. He burned it up. All the people turned back to God, or at least seemed to. The Canaanites continued to have influence over God's people because they did not obey God. But I want you to see another thing that this text is doing for the reader. So let's, let's come away from Israel for a moment. Israel needs to hear the origin of Canaan, needs to understand that the wickedness of the Canaanites goes all the way back to the very beginning. They need to hear that for justification for what they're about to do and a warning to do it lest they be influenced in these horrific ways. But now as readers, there's another thing this text is doing for us. It is preparing us For Abraham, the descendant of Sham. So look at verses, look at verse 26, chapter 9, verse 26. He also said, This is Noah, blessed be the Lord, the God of Sham. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? I mean, just think about this for a second. In the midst of Noah's passed out drunkenness and Ham's dishonoring of his father, what we have here is God graciously working in the hearts of Sham and Japheth to do rightly. And what we have here is the fact that even in the midst of such sin, that God is pleased to have a people call him their God. That God is pleased to have a people who call him Lord. One commentator says this, As the genealogies in Genesis show, the importance of Noah's son Sham lies, catch this, lies in his being the central link between the seed promised to Eve in 3.15 and the seed promised to Abraham in 2.218. What we have here in the middle is this man, Shem. The search for the seed continues. The overarching plan of the faithful God marches on. And so in the midst of all of this sin this debauchery, this foolishness, this dishonoring, what we have is this little glimmer. This is, what I, this is my point, catch this. This little glimmer of the fact that through Shem, there will be a continuation of the line that leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. The seed, the whole Bible is about the seed of Eve who will crush the head of Satan. So in the midst of all of this human sin, the hope of God's ultimate salvation continues. And that leads to our final two verses. Final point, the death. So we've had the drunkenness. We've had the dishonoring. And then quickly as we close this morning, verses 28 and 29, the death. Here's what these verses say. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years And he died. Here, we must return to God's words to Adam after the fall. Do you remember those words? Verse 19 of chapter 3. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And here, Noah Returns to the dust. Adam returned to the dust. All of those in the righteous line of Seth. Returned to the dust. Except for Enoch. And here we have Noah. Returning to the dust. And I want to end this morning with one major idea. One last idea for us as we leave today. All people must face. The death of dust. But not everyone will face the death of destruction. Think about that. We will all face the death of dust. We will all die and return to the dust. And someone will be there at our funeral, hopefully. Watching on. That will happen for all of us. Unless Christ comes back before. That will happen to all of us. But those of us who trust in Christ have conquered death. Those of us who trust in Christ have, have risen above death. There will be a returning to the dust, but there will not be eternal destruction. We have been given eternal life. I was listening to a little clip from John Piper recently. Where he's talk, he asked for prayer for a new book that he's writing. And he was just talking about the fact that throughout the ages, we will... Because God is infinite throughout the ages, there will be the immeasurable apprehension of his glory into the ages, that there will never be an end because God cannot be fully measured. He's infinite. And so we will infinitely enjoy God in all of his splendor and glory. That is eternal life to know God. And we get to spend eternity just being in awe of God, not sitting on clouds playing harps. No, no, not that. Not just playing rounds of golf, but taking in the glory of God, whatever that looks like, whatever that means for human life in the new heaven and the new earth, that is The destiny for all of those who trust Christ. I want you to listen to the words of the seed. Finally, the seed comes on the scene in the New Testament. Finally, the seed will come. The ark of salvation. The second Adam. The beginning of new creation. Real new creation. The Savior himself. This is what he says to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, everyone, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Praise God for that hope. That's a hope that transcends any suffering, that transcends any persecution, being burned alive, being stripped of your skin, any awful thing that man can do to us. We will never die. But I want you to hear the question that Jesus asks after that. He looks at Martha and he says these words. Do you believe this? And that's the question that the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who will crush, who has crushed Satan, the ark of salvation in whom there is refuge, the savior of the world, the second Adam, that's the question he poses to each of us this morning as we finish reflecting on Noah's death, the reality of death. That is the question that Jesus asks all of us this morning. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the one who has conquered death through his death. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners. We thank you that he finished the work of sin bearing on the cross. Father, we thank you that through him, though we die, we shall live. We thank you that Noah, though he was a sinner, though he was not a perfect man, you saved him. Just like David, that evil thing he did to Uriah, Bathsheba, you saved him. Feeble Peter, as he denied you, Jesus, and later as he would play the hypocrite and Paul would rebuke him, Peter received your grace. And he and Noah and all the others we've talked about will be with you forever. And Father, we too will be with you forever through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Father, help us. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.